Today's reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them daily a portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King's Quest, first through fourth. Go to the lobby and find your teachers. Good morning, Grace family. It's good to be with you this morning. Well, in 1997, Apple launched what some have called one of the most successful campaigns in the history of advertising. It was a 60-second TV ad followed up by a collection of posters that was attributed with pulling Apple out of a slump that they had found themselves in. Uh, Steve Jobs, Apple CEO, said this of the TV ad. It took only 15, 30, maybe 60 seconds to reestablish Apple's counterculture image that it had lost during the 90s. And at the center of this campaign were two simple words. Maybe you know them. Think different. So... Here, watch the TV ad that played. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits. The rebels. The troublemakers. The round pegs in the square holes. The ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. 
It's a pretty moving ad, right? It pulls on your heartstrings. And, and it's built around this genius message that if you want to have a long-lasting positive impact on the world, you're going to need to think different. You're going to need to break the status quo, think outside of the box. Think different. And here's the deal. I think that's not just a good message for selling computers, but I actually think it's a good word for us as a church to hear as well. To, to put a little spin on it so that I don't, you know, copyright infringement and all that. If we are to have a long-lasting, positive, effective relationship with the world that we find ourselves in, we as the church are going to need to live different. Live different. Uh, as a church, we are in a series on the missional identity of God's people. Okay, it's this idea that missions or, or living a life that is missional, it's not just for people who go overseas. And it's not just for those who are called to a specific cause. It's not just those who feel like they have the gift of evangelism. It's all of us that woven into the very fabric, the very DNA of who we are as God's people is that we are to be on mission. We are to help draw the world into relationship with the God who we are in relationship with. And as we have been blessed, we are to be a blessing to the world around us. But here's the truth, is that we can only be effective in that. We can only actually embrace that identity insofar as we choose to live different. Or as the Bible puts it, we're only going to make a difference if we embrace our calling to be holy. God's people are called to be holy. And I like to say that word holy, it's one of the biggest little words in the Bible. It's only four letters long, but there's a hundred ways you can define what it is and why it is so important for us to seek it out. And I like Pastor Will, he defined it a few weeks ago, as it's this idea that to be holy means to be set apart. It's to be distinct. And so first of all, we know, well, God is the one who defines what holy is because God is completely set apart. He's completely distinct. Right? On the one hand, God is completely separate from all evil, from all wrongdoing, from all oppression. God is separate from sin. But God's not just not something. God also is something. God is completely loving. He's completely faithful, patient. He's completely just because he is holy. And so as we come into relationship with this God, we, by extension, are actually made holy. And the call then for us is live that out in your life. You are to be holy. I love the way Peter puts it. It's very simple. He says, um, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So just as God is separate from sin, so too God's people are called to be completely separate from sin. And just as our God has demonstrated that he is one who pours out love, patience, forgiveness, and justice, God's people are called to step into those things too. Right? It's not like a new novel idea. God's people are different. We're called to live different 
And it's only when we live different that we'll actually make a positive, long-lasting difference in this world. And so today we're going <clears> to <throat> talk about this idea of living different, of what it looks like to live holy. And, you know, I, there was like a ton of, every time I prep a sermon, there's like four different passages I like start writing sermons on, and then I have to pick one. So there's a lot of different ways you can approach this, but I thought, you know what might be helpful? Let's just look at a story. Okay, if God were to, to launch an uh, advertising campaign around the slogan, live different, let's look at one of the faces that would show up in that promo. And as we look at his life, this guy named Daniel, it can get our minds thinking for what might it look like for me to live different? What might holiness look like in my life? So we'll be in the book of Daniel today. You heard the opening of it read today, and you might have been like, wow, that was a lot of names, and I have no clue what's going on. That's okay. I'll do a super quick biblical recap. So at this point in history, uh, it's we're jumping into the story during one of the lowest, darkest moments in the history of God's people. Because for year after year after year, they have been so rebellious against God that now they find that the, the big bad empire in their area, Babylon, has come in and just completely dominated them. And as a part of that, some of their people have been shipped off to Babylon. They've been kidnapped, and essentially they've been um, taken as slaves. And so God's people who are called to live different now find themselves in a world that is very different from what they know. And the question is, are they going to continue to live different? And if so, how are they going to do that? And so today we look at just one of those guys who was taken to Babylon, and his name was Daniel. He was taken with three other guys as well, and I, I love this. It says they were uh, youths or young men. We don't know, there's not like a specific age given, but it's probably like 12 to 18 years old. Okay, so as we hear this, don't picture an adult, picture one of our middle school or high school students. Okay, that's who's actually at the center of this story. And let's see how they live. Okay. So today we'll be looking at Daniel as he seeks, what does it look like to live different? And we'll see three different things of what that meant for him, how that worked itself out in his life. And we'll think, well, what might that mean for us today as well? So uh, we're going to jump in starting at verse 5. And... Uh, Oh, I wrote this down somewhere. I think it's page 497. Is that right? Anybody? So, okay, 737. All right, I was, okay, only 300 pages off. Not that different, right? Here's the first thing we're going to see, is that we as God's people are called to live different with a passion. We live different with a passion. Let's see what that meant for Daniel. So, Verse 5, it says, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine for, from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So Daniel's a part of this very specific group that, as they've been taken to Babylon, he is now going to be trained to become a consultant to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. 
And it's going to be very intense. For three years, that's what his life will be all about, is being trained to become this consultant to the king. Now, overall, this is not a good thing. Right? Remember, he has been taken from everything he knows and loves. He's essentially a slave now. But potentially, one bright, shining light, at least if you're a foodie like me, is that he's going to be well provided for while he's there. The food that he eats over these three years are going to come from the king's table. All right, so we're not talking like a diet of McDonald's here. It's like this is filet mignon. This is the good stuff. He's not going to drink two buck chuck. I don't even know what good wine is because I don't know wine. But whatever good wine is, it's like the thing you're like, the nose on this, right? I think people say that. That's what he's going to be drinking. And it seems like, okay, well, he's kind of in a good place then, right? Well, Daniel responds in a really interesting way. Check out verse 8 with me. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. It's kind of a weird response. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Daniel, you have a good thing going on here. But his response is, no, 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 I will not eat the king's food. I don't want what's on his menu. The question is, well, why? And the reason is, at this point in history, one of the ways that God had called his people to be distinct, to be holy, was through the food they ate. Okay, there were specific rules and regulations that governed what a faithful Jewish people could and could not eat. And those rules no longer apply to God's people. And for those of us who love bacon, we're like, amen, thank you, God, right? But, you know, sometimes, and I get that, right? We can be grateful for that. But sometimes what we miss there is actually this was a blessing. Because God's people were to be so set apart, so completely distinct, even what was on their plate was supposed to testify to that. You could even look at what God's people ate and say, ah, I, I can see that you are someone who has been set apart for God. Even their food was to be a way that they lived different. And so here, Daniel knowing that says, you know what, even here, even in Babylon, even potentially while I've got a good thing going for me, I'm going to choose to live different, even in the food that I eat. Okay, now if I'm in Daniel's place here, and maybe you can, um, you'll be with me on this, there are probably a hundred ways I would justify just eating this food, right? I mean, for starters, um, it's really interesting. Simply given the words that are in our Bibles, it's not clear what the problem with this food is. It's not like it says it's pork it's not like it specifies that, that it had been first sacrificed to some um, pagan idol. We don't know. And scholars read it, and, and the truth is, it's actually just not clear what Daniel's hang-up is here. There's, there's not necessarily some obvious, overt problem. And so for starters, it's like, well, you know, if there's not some obvious reason why this specific food is a problem, I would probably say, man, give me the good stuff, Right? I want to eat filet mignon every night. More than that, Daniel's already in Babylon. 
And for God's people at this time, just being in a foreign country itself would have been an unholy, defiling experience. And so to eat the food at this point, I mean, what's the big deal? Like, you're already in Babylon. Who cares if you're eating the Babylonian food? That's your life now, Daniel. And on top of that, too, I'm just thinking, personally, where would I be with God at this moment in terms of my relationship? I mean, I've just been kidnapped from my home, shipped across the world, knowing that I will live out the rest of my life essentially in slavery to the king, probably never see my home again, might never see my family again. Might be a tense moment in my relationship with God. Where were you, God? Why did you allow this to happen? Well, if if you're going to keep me here, I'm going to eat whatever I want. There were probably so many reasons why Daniel could have justified, I'm just going to eat the food. Who cares? This is a small thing. It's not like I'm bowing down to some idol. It's not like I'm, uh, I'm cursing God. It's just food. But Daniel doesn't do that. Look at verse 8 again. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And that word resolved, I think some translations say something like he, he determined in his heart. He set his heart on the fact that he would not eat this food. So to Daniel, this little thing that he probably could have justified away, something that's, that's pretty small, he's like, no, no, I'm determined. I will not eat the king's food. Give me something different. I think what's so interesting is even right here, Daniel is choosing to live different with a passion. He doesn't just fall into it. He's not like, well, okay, there's food laws, so like maybe I won't eat it, or like I can have like one cheat day a week. He's like, no, I'm not going to eat this food. I will choose to live different. I will be holy. I will be distinct in this way. Guys, thousands of years later, I think that's the same calling for us too. We are called to live different with a passion. We're called to be holy with a passion. I don't know about you, but here sometimes is kind of my response to to holy living or living different. And uh, it can be summed up as, how much can I get away with and how little can I do? (laughs) It's like, I know God wants me to care for those on the margins, because he says, if you go there, you'll find me there. And so sometimes my posture is like, well, okay, if I serve at the rescue mission like once a year, is that enough? Like, does that meet the quota? Is is that enough, God? Am I holy now? The flip side of that, too, is clearly God does not want his people to sin, And so my response can sometimes be, okay, God, could you like draw a line in the sand? Not so I can go away from it, but I can see like, how close can I get? Like, is it sin yet? Like, can I take one more little step, two more steps? Right, that's sometimes our posture towards sin as well. It's, well, how much can I get away with till this actually starts to be a problem? How little can I do? How much can I get away with? But here we have a teenager schooling at least me, (laughs) and maybe you as well, in what it looks like to live holy. 
Daniel's posture isn't, how little can I do? How much can I get away with? It's, no, I want to live as maximally set apart from my God as possible. If there is a line in the sand, awesome, now I know what I can run away from. Daniel lives different with a passion. Not just in the big make or break moments, but in the small things too, that it's almost like, who even cares? But he cared. Do you care? About a couple weeks ago, myself and a couple of my friends were taking a walk around this area. And uh, we were walking around Steelcraft. And so we rounded the corner, and as we did, we saw another one of our friends was sitting in there eating. And he saw us, and he called out, get a life! And, and this friend, I, he's like one of the most holy guys I know, and so it was kind of funny, right? And my friends, we like snarky humor, so we're like, oh, that's funny. We just went our way. Okay, completely forgot that that had even happened. Well, about a week later, the friend who called out, get a life, he texted me. In fact, he texted all three of us. And I just want to read you what the text says because I think this shows what it looks like to live different with a passion. Even in the things that's like, who cares? It's so small. Here's what he said. A week or so ago, I saw you and the others at Steelcraft, and I said, <clears throat> get a life. Of course, I was joking. But I wanted to come back to each of you and apologize for my snarky comment. You three have beautiful lives. I wish I would have said what glorious lives we have. Anyway, I wanted to apologize for that comment. It has stayed with me, and I've been pained by it. My first response to that text was like, it's okay, like, who cares? I hardly even remember that moment. But I stopped and I went, whoa, I think I've just encountered something holy here. Because who does that? <laughs> there were so many reasons my friend could have justified not sending that text. It was a week ago, they laughed at it, it might be weird to send it now, like, who cares? But he said, no, even in the words that I call out to my friends, at a restaurant, I want to live different. So I'm going to send that text. We're called to live different with a passion. But here's the deal. We live different with a passion, understanding that it might not always be easy. And Daniel shows us that as we continue to look at his life. Here's the second thing we learn from Daniel. We are called to live different even when it's difficult. We're called to live different even when it's difficult. So Daniel says, look, I don't want to eat the food from the king's diet. I want to live different in this way. Well, it creates some complications. Okay, let's look at verse 9. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? 
The king would then have my head because of you. So what's going on here? Well, this guy is in charge of making sure that Daniel and his friends are totally raised up and ready to serve the king. And that includes that physically, they are in a good place. And so as Daniel says, well, I don't want to eat the food that the king says is good for me. I want to eat the food that my God says is good for me. This guy's like, well, look, okay, I like you, Daniel. I understand you want to live differently for your God, but I'm not sure the king's going to like that too much. You choosing to live different here, it might create some complication. And in fact, in this specific scenario, he's like, it's not going to land on you, it's going to land on me. But regardless of who it lands on, the, the simple point here is when we go against the norm, it might make things a little bit difficult. By Daniel choosing to say, oh, I would rather eat what my God wants me to eat than what the king wants me to eat, that causes some problems. That ruffles some feathers. It raises some questions. And I think that's a good reminder for us today, too. Okay, two things from that that I think are important for us as a church today to hear. First thing is this. The call to be holy is not the same thing as the call to be a jerk. Being holy and being a jerk are not one and the same thing. Unfortunately, uh, there are circles of, um, I guess you call it Christianity, that believe that. That are like, God is most proud of me when I have the most amount of people angry at me. Right? You know these people. I remember when I was at Cal State Long Beach, um, every few months, we called them the sign guys, and they would show up, okay? And they would have their signs that say something like, you're going to hell, and they would stand in the quad, and they would scream things at students that was like, really? That's what you think Jesus wants you to say right now? Okay. And they would get a huge crowd around them, and they would just be going back and forth with people and screaming at them. And clearly, all the students are just so bothered, so angry. And those guys would leave campus, and I have no doubt they left thinking, we did God's work today. Look how angry people are at us. We don't do that. <laughs> That's not what God means when he says to live different. To be holy is not the same thing as being a jerk. I like the way Paul puts it in Romans 12, 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Kind of seems to confront that jerk idea, huh? We're called to live different even when it's difficult. We're not called to make things difficult. <laughs> Jesus says, yeah, you will be persecuted for your faith. It doesn't mean you go and you try to get persecuted for your faith. That's not what's being asked here. But here's the thing. I think sometimes we can go a little bit the other way, too. And, uh, you know, Grace, I've been a part of this family for almost 10 years now. It's crazy. So I've got to know us pretty well. And I can say really confidently, we do a good job of not thinking that being holy is the same thing as being a jerk. We excel at that. I think we, we have embraced this idea that, no, we're supposed to bring the flourishing of our city. When people see us, it's supposed to be a good thing for them. Uh, but if I can be candid, 
maybe a little bit bold, I think sometimes we sway a little bit too far the other way. We can buy into this idea that, well, maybe there's a way for me to live out my faith that never ruffles anybody's feathers, that never creates any questions, that never sparks any controversy. There's, there's some way I can live different, but it'll totally be incognito. It'll be palatable in all times to all people. And my pushback to that would be, is that actually what we see with Jesus? I don't think so. Was Jesus the most loving and compassionate person who ever lived? Yes. Did Jesus majorly rub some people the wrong way? Yes. Is Jesus the Prince of Peace? Yes. Was there controversy constantly surrounding Jesus? Yes. Jesus lived the most perfect, holy life. He lived a perfectly holy life. And because of that, because of that, he was persecuted and executed. And so if somehow we come to the conclusion, well, yeah, but I can do it better than Jesus. You know, I'm so cool, I'm so hip, like whatever, I can do it better. Might be time to check ourselves there. If our goal is really to become like Christ in all of life, then sometimes that means we might be received like Jesus too. We live different even when it's difficult. We don't try to make it difficult, but we're aware of the fact that that might happen, and it doesn't mean we shy away from it. Because Jesus didn't. And so, yeah, living different, it might mean you get a promotion at work. It might mean you get a demotion at work. Living different on your football team might mean you become the starting quarterback. It might mean you become a bench warmer. Living different might mean that you get a ton of friends and they, a lot of people love you. It might mean that some people just really don't like you. But let's live like Jesus here. We live different even when it's difficult. There's one more thing to see from Daniel here. He lives different with a passion even when it's difficult. But here's why. Daniel lives different to make a compelling argument. We are called to live different to make a compelling argument. So let's jump back to the text, verse 11. So Daniel's going to propose a test. He's going to say, well, let's, let's see who does a better job of providing, the king or my God. Verse 11, it says, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three friends, Please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. 
So Daniel's like, okay, look, I get that my desire to live different, it, it's, it's going to have an effect on someone else. So let's just do a little test first. And he says, take away the filet mignon, take away the good wine, give me water, and, and it says vegetables. And all you vegans out there were like, amen, I know how this is going to work out. He's going to be so much healthier. Not to burst your bubble. We don't actually know completely what that Hebrew word means. It might have meant vegetables. It just means from the ground. So it might have even meant like some kind of like grainy porridge-y thing. The point is, clearly after 10 days, those who eat the king's food should be in better shape than what Daniel's about to eat. The only way Daniel and his friends will be in a better place is if God actually shows up and helps them. And lo and behold... That's actually what happens. God steps in, and after 10 days, Daniel is clearly, Daniel and his friends are clearly in a much better place than those who've been eating the king's food. And the message, the argument that has been made is crystal clear. God is a better provider than the king. God is a better sustainer than the king. What God says is best is better than what the king says is best. And if you want to see that, don't, don't look at the Bible, just look at my life. Who's in better shape right now? And I love that the guard who's over them, he's so convinced he's willing to stake his life on it. Verse 16, it says, the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead which at first glance, that's like one of the saddest verses in scripture. It's like, oh, that's a victory? Like, come on. But it is a victory because this guy, if Daniel and his friends prove to be unhealthy, he will be put to death because of it. But after 10 days, he is so convinced that their God is a better provider than the king, he says, yeah, you guys eat whatever you want. I know your God will take care of you. I will stake my life on that fact. That's a compelling argument, right? If someone's willing to stake not only their job, but their life on the fact that that this God's ways are the best, wow. That is compelling. Their choice to live differently powerfully communicated to this man who their God is. And guys, we're thousands of years separate from this. We're not in Babylon. We're in Long Beach. Same thing for us. Our lives are the argument that God is who he says he is and that his vision for life is the best one. And here's the reality is, the world we live in, we really need to embrace that fact. Because I don't know if you've like read statistics, but America is what's called a post-Christian nation. There was probably a time where you could have just gone out into the public square and said, well, here's how I'm going to make my argument. Just look at Scripture. It's authoritative. And people generally might have said, yeah, that's true. Okay, you're right. That's a convincing argument. I don't think that's how it works right now. Now, now don't, please hear me. The Bible is completely authoritative, but I'm not sure our culture recognizes or believes that. And so for us to just walk out and say, well, we're supposed to be this way because the Bible says, okay, so what? 
But you know what our, our culture has a very, very strong value on? Is story. The one thing you can't really argue against right now is someone's story. And so, well, yes, maybe we, we can't just as easily appeal to the Bible to prove that God is who he says he is and his ways are the best. If you can appeal to your life, that's compelling. That actually holds some weight in our world right now. Your, your life is supposed to serve as the argument that God's vision is the best vision. And my question for you is, how compelling is your argument? If our argument is the argument, sorry, if our lives are the argument that God's ways are the best, let's make it a compelling argument. I think of um, a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you guys might have heard of her. Um, her and her husband were missionaries back in the 50s, and they had this goal of reaching the uh, Wanori tribe in Ecuador, which was an unreached uh, tribe at that time, and known for being very hostile towards outsiders. And so while trying to make contact with them, Elizabeth's husband Jim and four other men were killed by some men from the Wanori tribe. And so Elizabeth is left as a widow and also as a single mom of a 10-month-old girl. Now, what would make sense in this situation is to say, okay, I am done here. That, that is a door that is closed. Forget it. You've taken my husband. I'm not going back. Or if she were to go back to say, I'm going to go back with vengeance. Right? You took something from me. I'm going to take something from you because that's how our world works. But here's the, the crazy truth. She did go back. But she went back with a very different purpose. Two years later, she was living with the Wanori tribe, translating, their uh, translating the Bible into their language. And, you know, there's, there's room to question, like, well, were their missionary tactics the best one? Sure. You know what there's really no room for debate on is was Elizabeth choosing to live different effective? Because you know what? People from the Wanori tribe accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord, including some of the men who had killed her husband. As she went back and forgave, as she emulated the God who comes to us even though we push him back, she made a pretty compelling argument with her life that that God is worth getting to know. And people were convinced. Let's make our argument a compelling one, too. Just a few ideas, things that we can think about. How about, you know, we don't overwork ourselves and we choose rest because we want to show others that God is a sufficient provider. We are faithful in our marriages and relationships because we want to show others the God who's been faithful to us. We practice honesty because we want to show others that our God would never deceive us. 
we avoid intoxication because we want to show that it's better to be intoxicated with God's presence than with any substance. We choose to be generous with everything we have because we want to show others the God who gave everything for us, even his own life. We seek the welfare of all people, enemies included, because we want to show others the God who died for those who killed him. We have a special concern for the needy, the broken, the forgotten, because we want to show others the God who leaves the 99. And on and on and on. Read your Bible if you want more ideas of what it can look like. Your life is supposed to serve as the argument that God's vision is the best vision for how to live. So make it a compelling argument. Live different. Thanks be to God. We're going to transition into communion now. And here's the reality. We're called to live holy and different, but none of us do that perfectly. I know I certainly do not. The wonderful truth is that we have already been made holy because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And so today we partake, uh, partake in the bread and cup to remind ourselves of his sacrifice and how he has made us holy. So uh, you will be released by Rose to receive the bread and cup. The wine is in clear cups and the juice is in the purple cups as well. And let's join together in worship. <laughs> 